Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the DD Geopolitics Podcast. I am joined once again, finally, by Yara, who I haven't seen in so long, it feels like. And our guest for today needs no introduction, a regular on the show, military analyst and retired Navy nuke, Mark Sloboda. How are you, Mark, from Moscow? Sarah, Yara, thanks for having me. Uh, <laughs> it's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Double D Geopolitics. And Double D! Yeah, technically, technically not retired. I, I, I did my six and got out. So, well, I'm retired, so I win. I'm retired. You're retired. You did 20? No, I did 13, and I medically retired. Wow. Sweet. So to get started, uh, we're going to talk about Ukraine today. Everybody's been wanting to talk about Ukraine lately. We've kind of been focused on the Palestine-Israel issue. and Oh, Russia that's that other conflict. <laughs> Russia. Yeah, that other you one. That's, that's yeah. Um, You're two-timing. You're two-timing our conflict. <laughs> yes, I have two-timed Russia. Uh, Russia has been making their advances. Russia has been making moves, not only on the ground, but technologically, uh, sociologically, militarily, and industrially. So we're going to take a trip down memory lane. So we're going to uh, meet with Ursula for a second. Uh, go ahead and cue up that video. Russian military is taking chips from dishwashers and refrigerators to fix their military hardware because there are no semiconductors anymore. Russia's industry is in tatters. September 2022, we're discussing using chips from washing machines and dishwashers. Over the last year, Russia has made tremendous advancements in the field of military tech. We have AI-powered lancets now, uh, night vision FPV drones, uh, which are kamikaze drones. Last year, I think Ukraine said Russia didn't even have night vision technology. Uh, they finished the Su-34 production almost a quarter early uh, and began on the, the production for 2024. And they're sending what amounts to be an entire air force to Iran, just announced this week. You're an expert, according to you. How many dishwashers did Russian soldiers have to steal from Ukraine in order to support this enormous production pace, this grueling production pace, and this enormous uh, undertaking that Russia has done over the last year or so? Mm -hmm. uh, hold on one second, Sarah. Lena, have you finished hand scrubbing my clothing yet in the bathroom? <laughs> oh, I, I'm sorry. You see, we don't have a washing machine because we took it apart to take the microchip out of it and to send it to our military because that's how desperate we are. <laughs> so why don't we why don't we talk about these these sort of advancements and how we're kind of always in denial about what Russia really can do uh, from an industrial standpoint, from a technological standpoint, despite the isolation and despite the sanctions. Yeah. So there was an article out by the New York Times that kind of, I think, floored 
the entirety of the Western mainstream media establishment a few weeks ago. Well, actually, I guess it was already about a couple months ago. Uh, and the uh, title of the New York Times article, they were talking about uh, Russia not running out of missiles anytime soon. They're talking about Russia's increase in uh, uh, missile production. And they're, they're talking across the board, cruise missiles, you know, uh, ballistic missiles, the, 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 the um, uh, calibers, the KH-101s, the Iskenders, they're talking across the board and saying that Russia's not going to run out of missiles anytime soon. Uh, but they went further than that. They talked about how Russia is now producing uh, in actually what is almost certainly an undercount, uh, 200 uh, new T-90 tanks a year. Actually, it's probably about double that right now. Um, and uh, it, they didn't, they failed to mention that uh, Russia is also upgrading um, about six to 800 at the start of the conflict. I'm sure it's more now uh, older tanks uh, to newer standards with, with, with all new night vision and optics and fire control and everything. Um, and I, my, uh, go to the one that I have been quoting again and again on debates uh, with uh, uh, international uh, figures. Uh, we all know that Russia is Nigeria with snow, right? I mean, that's that's what we've been told in the Western mainstream media. Um, Russia, uh, it, which I guess is an insult to both countries from a U.S. supremacist, racist point of view. Anyway, um, but also. Um, uh, Barack Obama, famous, uh, you know, who was uh, Joe Biden served as his vice president, uh, famously said of Russia um, that Russia produces nothing. Russia, this he said at a time when uh, Russian cosmonauts were still ferrying his astronauts' ass up, up into space, right, on a, on a regular basis. Um, the amount of ignorance that the so-called Russian experts that the U.S. and European governments rely on is just, it's abysmal. I mean, it is the basis of so many ill-informed and disastrous foreign policy decisions regarding Russia. They, the, their Russian experts are to uh, a key uh, to a T, um, uh, anti-Russian ideologues, like, 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 let's say Anna Applebaum, right. And just clone her, uh, a few hundred times and, and you have, uh, please don't, please don't clone. Anna yeah, Applebaum. Yeah, yeah, please don't go there. Anyway, you got, you got the idea, right. They're, they all have a historical or an ideological or just a career wise ax to grind. And, and they they make their life by by putting down Russia and so much of the US's bad decisions with regard to this conflict and everything that has led up to it has been the result of these bad experts and one of the things they routinely of course talk down is is the Russian economy the Russian industry um and I have to admit and I I think uh, Putin himself has admitted as much the strength of the Russian economy of Russian industry has surprised everyone right now I did not expect the Russian economy to tank 
as a result of the West's existential economic war of sanctions. But when the war started, my wife and I actually made a a um, emergency list of the things we would need to cut out of our, you know, the excess things, because we were expecting hard times. We were expecting lean times and we were preparing a contingency plan. That contingency plan has never been utilized because for the most Russians, uh, the, it's it's like the effect that the Iraq war had on Americans. Is there a war going on or something in the background? I mean, in economic terms, that's that's the result. Uh, it, it has not affected the economy in, in any way, shape or form, unless you were taking your vacations in Tuscany. Uh, you know, and and uh, uh, trolling around Europe and, and you know, daily subsisted on imported Spanish uh, ham or something like that, which is not me. So I <laughs> hasn't had any real effect on us. Um, and, and unless you are a serious, uh, wealthy patron of, of European luxury consumer goods, it, it hasn't uh, had any effect. Um, so the other big number that the New York Times tossed out in that article was artillery shell production. And, and this is, uh, has been the bellwether of this conflict for good reason. This is, everyone agrees, a war of attrition. And wars of attrition, you know, particularly this one, but most wars of attrition are fought primarily with artillery. Uh, and not only do you need the tubes, you know, the howitzers, the, you know, the, the artillery guns, but you need the artillery shells. Uh, and very, you know, uh, just over a year and a half into the conflict, the Kiev regime uh, effectively ran out of the 152 millimeter shells uh, that equipped their, uh, that, that were for their Soviet legacy artillery pieces. And they became completely reliant on 155 millimeter shells for NATO standard artillery pieces like the M777, the Polish Crab, uh, and others that they, they have routinely got. Um, and uh, so then the, the game becomes artillery shell production. Um, and the New York Times in that article finally admitted that not only is Russia outproducing the U.S. in artillery shells, not only is Russia outproducing all of NATO together and non-NATO allies like South Korea and Japan who chimed in in artillery shells. Russia is outproducing all of them by in artillery shell production by seven times, seven times. Nigeria with snow, have some, right? Um, that, that is a number that shocked even me. Um, and um, I, I, I know it shocked a lot of military analysts. I saw uh, Michael Kaufman is probably the premier Western uh, military analyst fo focusing on Russia and Ukraine and on this conflict, at least who is not in an active government position, right? He, he talks mostly to the public. He's at uh, the Center for Naval Analysis, the Center for New American Security. He's got a, 
uh, uh, podcast, now also at War on the Rocks. You can find him on Twitter. Anyway, uh, he was passing around that article, and he suddenly got very, very quiet uh, and has been raising the issue about the desperate need of the West to get their shit together, sign long-term contracts, uh, and start, uh, you know, entering the artillery shell production race for real, which they still haven't done uh, because of of the simple way their politics and their military industrial complex uh, is is designed. It's not it's not designed. Their military industrial complex is not geared up for a land centric war of attrition in Eurasia. For decades, it has been, it's first of all, it's a for-profit, completely for-profit industry, and it has been geared towards a low-level counterinsurgency world across, uh, war across the Islamic world and high-end boondoggles like the F-35 and the littoral combat ship and, uh, you know, non-sexy, non-profitable items like artillery shells. Uh, and uh, even air defense missiles and, and other items were relegated to, oh, we promise we can produce those on demand, you know, if there's ever demand for those things again. Uh, yeah, surprise. Uh, you know, that, that system actually doesn't work at all. Um, and uh, all uh, of uh, NATO is, is being outproduced by Russia seven times. The EU prom famously already promised the Kiev regime, a million artillery shells uh, within a year. And uh, they didn't even produce a third of that amount. No. That was actually what they got drew from their own stocks, mm -hmm. right? It's supposed to be the big con initial contributor to that. Uh, so it's a, it, it's a joke. And now on top of this, uh, uh, the Western mainstream media has uh, widely reported, and I, I believe these are very credible, uh, considering uh, the events that have happened, that North Korea is now contributing uh, to Russia's war effort, just as South Korea uh, is contributing to the West's, uh, uh, you know, proxy uh, Ukrainian uh, side um, with artillery shells, likely with artillery tubes. Uh, rockets for multiple launch rocket systems, and likely uh, some of their own multiple launch rocket systems as well. Possibly other things. They've talked about ballistic missiles and, and other things. But North Korea can produce a lot of artillery shells because they were also geared up to fight an artillery war against South Korea for decades. Um, so that is now all, uh, or at least a very considerable portion of it, is at Russian disposal. Uh, and um, it, I, for, for as far as the public is concerned, all it costs is Kim Jong-un being allowed to run around Russia on a cosmodrome uh, to the Russian cosmodrome at Vostochny and a few other areas. Um, uh, it, it, it seemed for a while that he didn't want to go home, that he was just going to run around checking out ecological centers and museums and, and everything else uh, in Russia. Uh, but uh, Russia war in South Korea. If you enter into this conflict in this way, you will regret it. Well, uh, uh, the South Korean government first, they shipped 300,000 artillery shells that they the U.S. had in a secret cage in South Korea. They had a, a, an identical one uh, in Israel that was there to be drawn on by either country in the event of emergency. 
And last year, uh, um, the U.S. Uh, sent these two secret cages in South Korea and Israel uh, to the Kiev regime. Um, and on top of that, South Korea uh, started uh, sending artillery shells of their own stock to the U.S., which then immediately passed them on uh, to the Kiev regime. And and all of this is gone already, right? That's that's all smoke and dust. Uh, and uh, Russia is, you know, now in heavy industrial gear producing all of these things. Uh, and it's not just, um, you know, industrial capacity. Let's talk manpower. Because the Kiev regime, we all know, is in desperate need of manpower now. Uh, they have uh, th their mobilization, their, I hate that euphemism, mass forced conscription campaign over the last several months has not netted 20% of what it was supposed to, right? Uh, because people don't want to fight for this regime. They are fleeing it uh, in droves, um, uh, bribing their way across the border, whatever it takes, you know, to get out of range. Uh, of the uh, you know the press gangs that that troll over, and they have already uh, reduced limitations that uh, prevent you from being conscripted. Uh, physical disabilities, uh, chronic diseases like AIDS, uh, tuberculosis. Nope, that doesn't get you out anymore. Nope, you're in. Um, and they have begun a a big military recruitment campaign with commercials trying to get women to join, right? They've already conscripted women, right, with any type of medical background whatsoever. Ever worked in a pharmacy, right? You know, dentist, uh, you know, much less a nurse or a doctor. Those have already been long conscripted. Uh, but um, now they are looking, and, and women have served in roles like snipers and tank drivers, and uh, I'm sorry, not tank drivers, usually truck drivers and, and, and so forth. But um, now they're running commercials in the Ukraine to try to get women to join in combat roles. And uh, it is widely suspected that after the staggering casualties they took this summer, that the Kiev regime is is launching a total mobilization campaign uh, in the next week, um, and it is widely suspected, although it hasn't been mentioned yet, that they will be conscripting a number of women, that they will be re reducing the lower age to seventeen and raising the high age to seventy, uh, and. Uh, that is is speculation. But the one thing that I have heard for sure is they are going to be privatizing military recruitment. So there will be no more revenge acts, as has become common against these press gangs. That's why they wear their masks and, and run around. They will be given full full powers, right? That, you know, over everything, over police, over legality, everything. And Essentially, they're doing it so that Westerners can now, you know, uh, they're the ones who will be running these private military conscription companies. And it will be Westerners who are literally press ganging Ukrainians off the streets of Kiev, of Lvov, of Kharkov, uh, of anywhere, and putting them into the meat grinder, putting them in, forcing them into the trenches. Uh, I mean... 
I have not heard of one single industry in in any country, be it the you know the UK, Russia, the US, that privatization hasn't completely fucked that system over. Exactly. Uh, We're not talking about yeah. any privatization. We're talking about Western privatization. So that's, I mean, now we're talking about like Iraq. Yeah. So, but it is generally assumed that the Kiev regime has about 300,000 troops in the field now. Now, okay. large numbers of those are uh, completely untrained uh, conscripts, you know, forced into combat. Um, they actually announced this was this was actually reported in the Western media, I, I believe, in the New York Times. It might have been the Washington Post uh, about a month and a half ago that the Ukrainian military has a new internship program. <laughs> the newly mobilized people, rather than uh, enduring weeks of, of unnecessary training, they're going to undergo an internship in a frontline unit. That's the way they termed it, an internship in a frontline unit, which is a way of saying we're tossing completely untrained people into the frontline trenches alongside uh, those who have already been dying and, and suffering there for months. And they, the, me, the, the reporter who wrote that didn't even question the terminology, right? Uh, and what you know that actually meant. Um, so that's that's ongoing, uh, and uh, they know desperately that they're going to need it. The Kiev regime, Zelensky, finally this week announced the construction of massive defensive lines and fortifications across the country. He basically announced that the offensive right uh counter offensive nato proxy offensive whatever is over right no 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 talk about its results other than it was disappointing yeah it was complete embarrassing tragic catastrophic failure um and um now they need to go on the defensive which is what they should have done before they launched this offensive uh but uh now they're doing it rather late in the game but um it is the first smart thing we have heard out of this regime, uh, military-wise. In I don't and know. yeah, let's talk about that because in September of this year, September 2022, Zelensky promised me that he would have a successful counteroffensive, liberate Bakhmut, and give me two more cities. That yeah, three cities. Where's those three cities? So we're now in December. He has admitted that the counteroffensive has failed. NATO has admitted that counteroffensive has failed. Um, and we we've got you like you said, he said they need to dig in and start building fortifications, which it's like three months too late. Um, and then uh I'm watching the Russian army raised the Soviet banner of victory over the city of Marinka. And I'm hearing that Abdiyevka is completely, completely encircled. Are these, I'm, the I'm, I'm going to actually stop you there and say over the ruins and rubble of Marinka, <laughs> there is no city left. There's nothing, nothing left. No, not at all. Not at all. But are those the two cities that Zelensky has promised me at Marinka hey. and Abdiyevka? I, I think he, they managed to still hold on to a few basements in the hamlet of Prinky. Does that count? 
They have some basements. I, I think they've still got a few basements in Cranky, right? Oh. I mean, that's it's I mean, what, it's what happens? Like, what happens now? So we we have Bakhmut. Bakhmut's finished. They're west of Bakhmut. Yeah. Like that's that's a dusty. Yeah. Russia is back. Uh, at, at the very least, Klishevka and Andreevka, these sole accomplishments, these two villages that they managed to take in, what, eight months of offensive, yeah. uh, they're already driven out. They're, at the very right. least, gray zoned. If Russia doesn't have control, it's only because there's nothing left standing there to physically occupy. Uh, but they've been driven uh, out of those. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a similar phenomenon is going on in other places, uh, a little bit slower than that, but it's also happening in uh, Pyatihatki, right? There's no more Ukrainian forces in the Five Hut village. Um, uh, 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 Robotna is once again a battle zone. Uh, the, uh, Russia's advancing, taking back positions in the Removsky salient. That the entire meager little gains of that counteroffensive in Russia's screening zone are are already being erased. Well, um, what happens with Avdiivka and operational encirclement once Avdiivka falls? Yeah, and we go to Kramatorsk, and yeah. then that's really it. Is that the end? Are we seeing the liberation of yeah. Donbass, and how much longer? So, the the Kiev regime is a ruck, is erecting a new defensive line to the rear of Avdeevka, and basically they understand that they've lost Avdeevka, and I do believe that they're going to attempt to pull a few thousand troops out of their last minute. But they're attempting to hold on to give time to hastily construct another defensive line, which they should have done a long time ago, but, you know, they don't, they didn't believe in defense, right? They were going to uh, sweep to victory. So they didn't, uh, Zeluzhny, from what I understand, actually wanted to, but uh, Zelensky uh, ruling the military from his political fantasy land uh, overrode him on it. And, and for us, thank God that he did. Um, but, um, they're going to attempt to erect another defensive line between um, Avdeevka and Konstantinovka and Kramatorsk. Uh, so um, I think that Russia will take Avdeevka and they will sometime in the next two months or so, right? Um, and more or less, right? Uh, it, it, it Within two months, I think they will have uh, it all but sewn up, if not completely. Uh, if, if there's anything left, it will just be outskirts. Um, but I think then they're going to try to flatten their lines. Um, it's it's very interesting. Um, Shoigu uh, gave a speech this week uh, where he, he talked about the, the situation thus far, and he talked about the Kiev regime going on the defensive. And it's interesting, though. He referred to what Russia is doing now and plans to do probably for months ahead as active defense and improving their tactical position. This, as far as they're concerned in Avdeevka, is not a real offensive, right? Just like Bakhmut wasn't a real offensive. This is them improving their defensive position. Um, if you read into his speech, it became clear that Russia is actually gearing up for a major offensive. 
right? I wanted to ask that because there were differing opinions about the yesterday's events in Marinka. A few people said, great, this is kind of like we're going to take our operational winter pause. And then I think it was Andrei Martinov said the opposite. He was like, no, 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 no. This is like a preparation for another uh, large Oh, yeah. So I want to hear more details about what you think is going to happen. I, I think that Russia, so, so if you take a look at how, how many Russian troops has, right? Um, uh, we, we talked about the Ukrainian manpower uh, and how badly they are, you know, a, a paltry 300,000, a lot of them untrained and, uh, you know, uh, r- resorting to desperate measures on conscription. Um, Russia is very close to right now, they're probably just over a million man army dedicated just to the SMO and rapidly moving on a 1.5 million man army that Putin mentioned um, would be necessary for, you know, serious uh, offensive actions, you know, in the direction of Kiev. Um, if you take up the 150,000 initial force that Russia went into the SMO with, right? Yes, they've obviously they've taken casualties since then, but they've gotten, you know, replacements for these, right? Um, the there was 40 to 50,000 from DNR and LNR that have now that were there, obviously fighting for 10 years. Well, Russia, while Putin was fucking around with the Minsk agreements, being led around like a a show pony uh, by Merkel and and Holland. uh, Sorry, that's what it was. Um, He he has admitted that it was a mistake that he did not go in in 2014, uh, which I said at the time. But, you know, better late than never, I guess. Um, But this war could have been fought in West Ukraine instead of East Ukraine. So I anyway. want to zoom into that, um, Mark. So as we know, President Zelensky's election campaign did center on uh, promising to resolve the conflict in eastern Ukraine, all these promises to resolve it peacefully, to tackle corruption uh, within the Ukraine. And now we're stuck under this kind of uh, almost dictatorship of sorts. Uh, and Ukraine oh, yeah. won't even have elections. Yeah, not almost. Zelensky's. Dictatorship. Yeah. Dictatorship. Yeah. So, so Zelensky said there will be no elections during the war, yeah. right? So how did we get from then to now? And what are the specific challenges within Ukraine's domestic and international landscape that led Zelensky to kind of pivot from his initial stance of conflict resolution to then making immediate demands for NATO membership? Yeah, um, we don't know. Um, it would be a large, I, I don't believe that the Zelensky who won the election is necessarily the Zelensky that that we have today. I think that he discovered rather quickly what the regime that he inherited, right, uh, from Poroshenko was, what it was based on, what its foundations were, i.e. I, the far right, you know, the Banderai fascist battalions. And that's what he was dealing with in the Rada as well. Uh, in the security services and, and so forth. And uh, after some initial attempts uh, at um, it, at least paying some lip service to the Minsk Accords, he, I think he very quickly internalized all of this, right? I don't believe that Zelensky was a Banderite fascist. 
I, but I think he has completely come to accept that that is the regime he has inherited and he has internalized that it has led it on since, right? Zelensky has, there were in Ukraine now, they banned 16 opposition parties, including, of course, all the parties that really represent the views, the voices of the people of, of East Ukraine, right? Uh, the, the party original party of regions was lustrated. And, and when uh, the new opposition bloc uh, started to outpoll servant of the Zelensky servant of the people in the polls, boom, uh, its leader Medvedchuk was charged with treason. Uh, and, and it wasn't too long after that that the party was, was completely banned, along with, it must be said, every other real opposition party, right? Anything that is not a Maidan party in the country or completely inconsequential has been banned. And the leaders of the three largest opposition parties were charged with treason, right? Medvedchuk, uh, uh, but even Poroshenko, which is a you know his European Solidarity Party was a the a, the Maidan party, right? Uh, and it's certainly geopolitically aligned, but uh, it, there, there's petty political, uh, domestic political differences about which are the ruling elite of the Maidan. And, and that's why he has acted uh, against Poroshenko and uh, charged him with treason. And the West kind of forced them to put that to the side uh, quietly. Uh, but there is no democracy in Ukraine. Let's, let's be perfectly uh, you know clear about that. There is no normal internal political process. What we have right now is... Uh, factions within the Maidan who, as things have gotten increasingly desperate and the blame game has begun in earnest, are now fighting amongst themselves, right? You have, at the very least, uh, you have the political establishment led of the regime led by Zelensky, and you have the military establishment of the regime led by the top general Zeluzhny. And they're even the New York Times has called it an open rift, right? They're in open conflict with each other. The U.S. has been giving lots of signals, including trying to push Zelensky to hold elections, that it wanted to switch. It had lost confidence in Zelensky uh, for overruling his own generals uh, and, and uh, making military decisions based on uh, diluted um, uh, political visions. Uh, but also, more importantly, he was ignoring the marching instructions uh, from the NATO planners for the Southern Offensive. And, and that's what really did it. They would like there to be elections in Ukraine next year, despite the conflict, despite the Ukrainian constitution that says you shouldn't have elections in a, in a time of martial law and war. And it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, uh, first of all, you don't control 20% of your own country. Second of all, you've banned every real opposition party anyway and silenced all critical media and taken all media under a unified information policy and conducted a pogrom against the largest church in the country. You know, why bother with elections uh, for show? And the U.S., I believe, wanted to switch horses to Zelensky. They wanted to do it in a way that wasn't quite so obvious as another U.S.-backed putsch in the country or coup so soon after the last one. In and I, I want to talk about that because last year at this time, Zoluzhny and Zelensky were probably doing rails at the company Christmas party. And this year, 
um, where you saw the cracks, cracks begin to show a, a, a while back if people were watching, but it became yes. became pretty obvious to the public uh, when Zelensky was still under the influence that the counteroffensive might succeed. And um, Zeluzhny wrote that really weird op-ed. I think it was in The Economist. And yeah, then, the, I yeah. need sci-fi weapons to win this conflict. <laughs> And then things escalated when so recently when Zelensky's camp tried to or when they dismissed the leadership of the uh, special forces in the military. And then it finally comes to a head even more recently when a member of Zelensky's party publicly called for Zeluzhny to resign. So are we just trying to get ahead of the curve here because we know that the West sort of prefers Zeluzhny at this point? Yeah. Or yes. what kind of leader is Zeluzhny? Is this a military coup? What do we think is going to happen? Like. I'm I'm just not I'm not really sure. I see Zelensky as like Hitler in the bunker vibes. Last leg, uh, especially that time that time article that was kind of crazy. Um, yeah, and I, I'm feeling that was like a hit. that was a, an amazing uh, piece. I mean, though. they literally called him deluded. Yes, uh, and and this is supposedly uh, that you can't tell him that they're losing. Yes, uh, this was from a a supposed member of his own administration. Right. Uh, an official, it said, a political official, not a military official. So that's all very interesting. There's been a lot of very interesting articles in the Western mainstream media. And it's quite obvious that the Western, the editors of the Western mainstream media have gotten the signals from the White House that Zelensky is now fair game. Right. That that uh, the the the, you know, shield of of uh false churchillian heroism that was cast over zelensky is has been removed um and um there have been a slew of articles about that uh in this rift um obviously the zelensky admin and a lot of people name yermak his gray cardinal chief of staff a lot of people say he's really the leader of of the political arm of the regime not zelensky oh, but but anyway um, that uh, they initiated several things uh, already months ago that they caught wind of this and they were acting to preserve their power and prevent the U.S. from switching horses to Zeluzhny. Uh, and partly also, of course, to tar his image with the Ukrainian public, which, you know, is, is part of the same thing. Um, one... They initiated in an investigation headed by the SBU, the Ukrainian intelligence, into what happened in the beginning of the conflict in the south, in Kherson and Zaporozhye, which basically just fell into Russia's lap. There was hardly any fighting. Uh, and um, honestly, a, a large numbers of uh, security people uh, were compromised by Russian intelligence, Russian loyalties, and just stood down, right, and had their people stand down. Um, that that was a big part of it. It was supposed to happen all over the country. It was probably supposed to happen in Kiev. That was probably the decapitation strike that was planned. It didn't work in Kiev, but it worked great in the south. It worked too well. Russia fell, you know, into Kherson city and other territory that they didn't have enough troops uh, to um uh defend uh, that much territory uh they had too much territory in such a short time when it became clear that uh kiev wasn't going to accept any type of 
um, uh, you know, uh, political end to the conflict, and it was going to become a real war, essentially, with all of NATO. Uh, that's why Russia was forced to withdraw from Kherson City and from Kharkov and uh, concentrate on core areas while they then built up the mobilization force and the mass uh, military uh, contract soldier recruitment campaign was launched that has proved so incredibly effective uh, and so forth. Um, so, um, but they launched this investigation and it seemed, you know, they're basically accusing the military leadership of not preparing defenses, possibly even of being traitors. Uh, and it's obviously designed to end with the finger pointed at Zeluzhny. Everybody sees this. It's, it's you know, routinely talked about in the Ukrainian social media channels and, and media such as it is. Um, but um, it is actually it's hilarious that it is the SBU conducting this investigation because actually the most number of um, of anyone uh, the open people who at that time stood down and defected to Russia uh, within the Kiev regime, you know, uh, military and security services in the south there, it was mostly the SBU. <laughs> Their own top guy, you know, in, in Kherson is his, his, they got his family out of the country and he's, I don't know whether he's living in Belarus or Russia now or where, but he, him and his family were gotten out, right? So, um, it's it's hilarious that it's the SBU conducting this investigation because they should be investigated more than anyone on you know what actually happened there. Uh, but the other thing that they've launched is when there was this big media circus that was developed over uh, the military recruiters, uh, the the conscription, the press gangs, the commissars, the recruitment commissars, as they are called, how corrupt they were and how much money they were taking to get people out and everything. And if you'll remember, Zelensky fired them all, right? All of the commissars are gone, which has actually led to <laughs> part of the horrible recruitment problems they had. But then he charged Zelensky with naming their replacements. So that is obviously a poison pill. Um, it, it, it was almost certain that the, uh, the uh, you know, conscription, the mobilization campaign after that would be a failure. And it, almost certainly the same corruption would just rear its head again because Ukraine. Um, and then they would have that also to pin the blame on Zelensky or on Zeluzhny. Uh, and of course, the whole failed counteroffensive is, is going to be pinned on Zeluzhny as well. Although, if anyone should be blamed, it's actually NATO's military planners because they planned and, and intelligenced and trained and armed. They, they, it was their baby, right? Zeluzhny was just the babysitter. Or, or But how the, does that work then? How do we position Zeluzhny into a leadership uh, role if we're going to, if we have him to put the blame of the counteroffensive on? Oh, well, that's what the regime is going to do. But the West is not going to put the blame on Zeluzhny. The West is going to put the blame on Zelensky because he diverted forces that should have been used uh, in the uh, southern offensive, counteroffensive, uh, to his ill-fated attempts to hold on to and then retake Bakhmut, right? So it, it will be him, 
right? That he overrode his noble general and, and of course, the NATO planners and, and so forth. Um, that uh, appears to be, you know, the West's game plan for that. They want Zelensky to be the fall guy, the scapegoat for this all, not Zeluzhny. Zelensky wants to make it Zeluzhny. And who knows what Kirill Budanov <laughs> wants, because if anything, I would say he's a, a, a third, a possible third vector of power in all of this. And as the long knives have come out, and we saw uh, the um, uh, Zeluzhny's uh, top aide, uh, essentially his chief of staff, Chestyakov, uh, die uh, a few weeks ago uh, in either a moronic accident with a grenade at his birthday party, if you want to <laughs> go with that story, or uh, a hit uh, by the Zelensky admin, by Yermak, uh, and a warning to Zeluzhny. Uh, which is certainly what the Ukrainian social media channels, uh, you know, Telegram and so forth, believe uh, what uh, was what really happened there. Uh, and now Budanov's wife. Yeah, his wife. Yeah, well, this is the story. It's not just his wife. It was a number of other GUR military intelligence personnel as well that were apparently poisoned. Their, evidently, their food was poisoned by some type of heavy metal, something, I don't know, mercury, arsenic, something uh, more exotic. I don't, they haven't given any details. But evidently, it's, and this has been reported in the media before, he's admitted this. His wife, a young, haughty trophy wife with artificially inflated lips, if that's your thing, um, she um, uh, was... Um, living with him in his office, i.e. read his secret underground James Bond villain bunk bunker, where, wherever it is. And she's been living there since the start of the conflict for, you know, because, well, with as many people as he has assassinated in Ukraine and in Russia included, um, he there are so many people that probably want him dead um, that uh, he has good reason to fear. Um, so this was obviously a poisoning that uh, happened in the uh, the Kiev regime's military intelligence wing, and she simply ate the food that was there and was poisoned with everyone else who was eating that food. I don't think it was deliberately targeting her, um, but um, certainly somebody wanted him dead. Could it have been the Russians? Sure, it could have been, right? I don't think... That's really their style. But of course, that's what they believe in the Western media. But I mean, he's assassinated so many Eastern Europe, Euro European uh, uh, officials, uh, you know, that went over to Russia and, and have been serving in, you know, the Russian led governments there. Uh, the leaders, of course, uh, of the initial uh, uprising against the Kiev regime from Zaharchenko to, to uh, give it, you know, everyone on down, all of those hundreds and hundreds of people they killed. Um, you know, he's been behind a lot of it. So Russia could have done it. But I, I think it seems a far more likely that it, this is part of this long knives that's going on within the regime right now. Right. I, I think it's it's far more likely someone internal wanted him dead. And I don't know what his game is. I don't know who he owes loyalty to 
whether Zelensky or Zeluzhny or someone else or just himself, but he's obviously a powerful player in this political game because there's very few other people that have had as much face time with the Western media, uh, you know, allowed to speak their mind. The other one who has, of course, is Aristovich, uh, the, you know, the previous uh, presidential advisor um, uh, that, uh, you know, has since uh, opened his mouth a bit too far and ended up in uh, self-exile. And now he has declared his own essential presidential bid for the elections that that Zelensky now says won't happen and he's been actually preaching that Ukraine needs to peace that they need to give up and he's been saying things that would get anyone who was still in Ukraine killed like admitting to 300,000 uh, dead uh in the Kiev regime military admitting that you know uh, even within the units of the Ukrainian military that some 40 to 70 percent don't want to fight at all. Um, he's been admitting all sorts of things. And his story is now, look, at, we told you all a lie in order to save Ukraine, right? Um, and I was one of the principal people involved in constructing that lie. But now I'm telling you the truth to save Ukraine. Right. So uh, that's a rather interesting little uh, game that snake is playing there. But if anything else, I think Aristovich is one of the most entertaining and probably intelligent figures uh, that the regime has had. Right. And he's obviously not a part of it now, uh, but I, I strongly suggest he I remember seeing an interview with him back in. Uh, on Ukrainian TV in 2016, and he predicted exactly the Russian intervention uh, and how it would occur and where it would occur years ago. That video is still out on YouTube. Um, so um, uh, I always pay attention to what he says, even with the understanding that a lot of it is and always has been intentional lies. Uh, you, you can get some interesting nuggets of real information out of him and now more so than ever uh, so that that's a, a, a another political game or player that is emerging that appears unconnected with anyone else uh at least at the moment but um this this conflict between Zelensky and Zeluzhny is going to come to a head uh Zelensky has been touring around uh, the country visiting the front lines in the last couple of days, meeting with all the top generals, having a top military council to go over what happened with the offensive and the construction of the defenses from now on. And who was not there? Zeluzhny. Uh, and it's quite obvious that Zelensky is going to attempt to fire him or completely sideline him at the very least sometime in the very near future. Uh, and that could get politically explosive in, in a, a situation where we thought politics was completely dead in the regime, right? It's not politics as we know it. It's different heads of the beast. And for anyone who thinks that Zeluzhny is a better figure than Zelensky, uh, I, you're sadly mistaken. Zeluzhny is an actual Banderite fascist ideologue, right? The videos out there, the articles, there was an article in the World Socialist uh, website. Um, Zeluzhny 
in his own office, and the, the pictures that he took, photos and selfies and stuff there, he has two busts of Ben there, right? Uh, not just one, because one bust of Stepan Ben there is not enough for Zeluzhny. And he also has one of Shukovic as well. And he has the big red and black banner over his wall that he was taking pictures in. And if you'll remember at the beginning of the year, when um, the Ukrainian parliament tweeted out the new about the new, you know, the national holiday of Bandera's birthday on January 1st, they tweeted out a picture that was obviously provided them by Zeluzhny of Zeluzhny taking a selfie in front of a portrait of Stepan Bandera. The guy is a real Banderite fascist, not someone like Zelensky, someone of Jewish descent who was a comedian who internalized all of this and fell into this because of Kolomoisky and his stupid TV show. No, Zeluzhny is the real deal. He is a real hardcore Banderite son of a bitch, bastard, right? Uh, so don't expect delusiony to be any kind of uh, gift if he ends out on top of this power struggle which right now he doesn't seem to be doing too well but we'll we'll see how it goes yeah there we go there it is that's not yeah, even yeah. That's try, try to try to apologize that one away western media try to tell us again how delusiony is churchill right <laughs> okay well, Look, I, I mean, to... to be fair, Churchill was a racist bastard <laughs> of his own accord, right? You know. But, um, Speaking of I Churchill wanna... in Britain, let's talk about Nord Stream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wanted to jump in and talk about Nord Stream real quick. Obviously, we know uh, the Nord Stream uh, two pipeline is a contentious issue, and it directly affects the energy dynamics be between Russia and Europe. Um, so, for listeners, the gas pipeline project is designed to transport natural gas from Russia to uh, Germany through the Baltic Sea. Yeah, so was. We yes. So we now know that the, the Nord Stream pipeline that was blown up last year caused this energy crisis. And with the current fuel restrictions, how how does Europe and how does the West uh, support these two wars uh, and their societies with the crisis? And why yeah. does the West keep self-sabotaging? Okay, so this pipeline was constructed by uh, a German government and business political establishment that no longer has power in the country. Right? Understand that, first of all. Um, you know, uh, Merkel maybe wasn't crazy about Nord Stream, but she had a coalition government and the Social Democrats at the time were in favor of it. And certainly German business was. And we've had numerous top German economists come out and now and fully admit that, um, well, uh, ger the German economy is not going to work. It is not going to be competitive and profitable in the slightest, you know, for heavy export orientated, uh, you know, uh, industry without cheap, reliable Russian gas. It's simply not. So their story then is that then we need regime change in, 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 Russia, because then we can turn the gas on again. That was what one of Germany's top economists tweeted out a few weeks ago. And I'm like, yeah, good luck with that. Okay. Um, best best uh, get used to all your businesses like Michelin and then uh, all your chemical, everyone that is high energy 
uh, intensive industry moving to the U.S. where gas prices are comparatively cheaper. The German economic miracle is over. Um, and the, the new German leadership that is in power, right? Uh, uh, Olaf Scholz is a feckless, you know, worm, uh, as far as I'm concerned. The one wearing the real britches in this weak coalition government is obviously Annalena Baerbock. And she is a pro-U.S. hegemony, anti-Russia, anti-Chinese ideologue. And she never wanted this pipeline constructed to begin with. This is a woman who, along with Joseph Burrell and a few other top EU officials, they regularly quote by name Robert Kagan, right? The, the arch, the ultimate U.S. neocon and the husband of Victoria Newland, by the way. All of Burrell's jungle and garden, that's like Kagan 101. That's like the title of his books. Right. Um, uh, you know, look over his bibliography and you, you'll, you'll, you'll quite easily see that. Uh, they never wanted this pipeline constructed. So when the U.S., which promised that they would destroy this pipeline if Russia intervened in the Ukrainian civil conflict, they did. You know, uh, uh, Biden famously, you know, said, we will end it. Trust me, we can do it. Right. Uh, and they did it. Uh, and the German government, uh, uh, you know, that was in power now at the time, you know, Baerbach and Schultz, they went along with it because they didn't want it to exist. Why? Because they fully believe in U.S. led Western global hegemony. They believe their parts in the cog. They don't they believe in Atlanticism, if you want to put it in geopolitical terms. They're anti-Russian. They didn't want a Europe that it was in any way connected to or dependent on, on Russia. And, you know, that is inevitable. Uh, pipelines, right, that provide energy are really the closest thing we have to geopolitical connections in physical form. Right. They link countries together as consumer and producer of, uh, you know, energy, which is the most essential of all um, uh, the, the material building blocks of civilization and, of course, particularly industrial uh, economic civilization. So um, the. the U.S. wanted this pipeline removed. They never wanted it built in the first place. Uh, Blinken, actually, there's um, a book on Amazon. I can't remember the name of the top of it off my head. Um, something Friends, Foes uh, by Anthony J. Blinken in 1982. This was, I, I guess, his his probably his university thesis. He wrote about how then the Soviet built pipelines, you know, the ones running across Ukraine and Poland, were a threat to the U.S. Uh, because they tied Europe and Russia together, and those pipelines should have never been built. And the, explaining the problems that the U.S. has with them, um, and. Um, uh, then he became Secretary of State, 
And uh, there we go. Ally, ally versus ally. America, Europe, and the Siberian pipeline crisis. This is the guy now who is the U.S. Secretary of State. He was against the Soviet pipelines linking the Soviet Union and Europe, much less the Nord Stream pipelines. And he became probably one of the drivers, at least according to Seymour Hirsch, and it seems likely of the Biden administration effort to blow up the Nord Stream pipelines because they were even worse, of course. They went under the Baltic Sea and, and you know, didn't even have any transit countries involved. Uh, so they didn't want any future German government of being able to back away and return to Russia as a supplier of energy. It's a win-win for the U.S., right? Europe becomes more dependent on them and they get to sell their LNG to a captive audience in Europe, even though it costs, you know, somewhere between two and four times as much as the natural gas that, that uh, Europe was getting for, for Russia. So the U.S. loses an economic competitor in Germany and the rest of Europe. Europe becomes more dependent on the United States. And, uh, you know, uh, of course, the hope was. Uh, not that Russia will turn to China and India and, and become a solid part of an Eastern Bloc. The hope was the Russian economy would collapse. Well, that didn't happen, uh, in large part due to countries like India and China and um, Turkey and even Saudi Arabia buying enormous amounts of Russian energy and then reselling it, you know, in, in a lot of cases, uh, back to the Europeans for a markup. Uh, because, uh, you know, they didn't believe in how the West, how the U.S. was weaponizing its control of the global uh, financial and economic architecture that they built against Russia, because everyone realized that what could be done to the Russia could be done to them. Uh, and, and that was, uh, you know, a, a very sincere lesson that a lot of people realized, and they realized that they needed Russia to balance the U.S. in world order to, to prevent themselves from all being abject subjects of the hegemon. Uh, so, you know, they all participated in giving, you know, U.S.-led Western sanctions, the, you know, the big finger from the rest of the world outside the West. Uh, and uh, that's why, you know, despite the fate of Nord Stream, Russia is doing quite fine on energy exports. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, it's the best thing that could have happened. I'm, I'm all for, you know, uh, the Russian government keeps pointing out that these Western sanctions are not going away anytime soon, even if the conflict ended. Of course not. It's, it's become political. Jackson Vanek sanctions, they outlived the Soviet Union by decades, right? They were, they were completely pointless. Uh, so these sanctions aren't going to go anywhere. This is the great economic and social decoupling between Russia and the West, and in many ways between the West and the rest, as increasingly becoming evident. Uh, and I fully, fully support Russia's economic decoupling from the West, financial decoupling, everything, because now they can no longer hold that leverage, that blackmail over Russia. Russia, other than, you know, even more so in some ways than China, is the country with the most real sovereignty uh, from U.S. hegemony today. China is still locked in a 
frenemy tight economic relationship with the U.S. where they need the U.S. as their primary consumer of their manufactured goods. Uh, but Russia doesn't even have, Russia has very little uh, to no economic exposure to the U.S. anymore. The uh, economy is growing, even cut off from SWIFT and, and the entire Western, you know, uh, economic uh, system. So, so that's the best thing that could have happened. Well, speaking of wars, weapons, misery, China, Russia, and wanting people to die, this week we lost, uh, unfortunately lost, um, Henry Kissinger. Um, I lose, lose the term, unfortunately, very loosely here. Um, but I do think that it's ironic because we're in the midst of World War III. And also, I'm kind of sad that this asshole isn't going to be able to watch this world order that he built at the behest of millions of lives absolutely crash around him. Um, it's kind of ironic to me because uh, Kissinger's kind of responsible for building up United States re relationship with China, uh, well, at the uh, at the detriment of a relationship with the Soviet Union, and now as yeah. Kissinger, Kissinger dies, the Russian and Chinese relationship is getting stronger than ever. Yeah, and the United States is kind of out of the loop. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the three or four million people that you know, uh, those who have written books about Kissinger, uh, you know, from Yale and so forth, uh, have you know attributed as responsible his policies: Chile, Argentina, um, Cambodia, Laos, Indonesia. You know, all these millions, three to four million that you know, researchers believe that can be laid properly at Kissinger's feet, but. Um, you know, that aside, right, if you want, want to lay all moral considerations aside, I, I don't have much human morality left in me at this point. I've got to be perfectly honest. Uh, you don't have to have any morality on this show. It's yeah. Totally yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I share something with Kissinger and that we're both realists. Uh, and Kissinger was a realist. And I think he died severely regretting what the U.S foreign policy elite, the blob, the deep state, depending on how you want to turn them, has become. Because realists have been completely locked out of uh, uh, you know, power in the U.S. foreign policy for a couple of decades now. And where their policy has taken them in pursuit of hegemony, realists like Kissinger very much regret what has happened, right? He was making all kinds of statements about how NATO... You know, originally, at least how uh, in the last few years about how Ukraine, the U.S. shouldn't attempt to bring Ukraine into NATO and and even, uh, you know, um, should find some common uh, cause with China uh, in, in the common day. He regretted the ideological U.S. exceptionalist slash supremacist uh, liberal foreign policy elite you know, exemplified by Blinken and Sullivan that, that the U.S. foreign policy uh, has become. Uh, I think he died very much regretting, uh, you know, where the current U.S. and, and decades now of, of U.S. government has been. Uh, Kissinger well, did well, not. I, I hope he was miserable when he died. I very I'm sure he probably was. Yeah. Definitely running was. in hell, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> God, we're horrible. The, the 
Kissinger did not invent the Sino-Soviet split in the Cold War, right? There were a whole other factors. But he widened it. He exploited it for U.S. geopolitical purposes. The whole detente, uh, well, first of all, the opening of China, right, credited to Nixon. It was really Kissinger who was pushing it, right? Uh, and then the detente with Russia, uh, while you know that was a, a, a you know basically a, a, a poison handshake there. Uh, this was all engineered by Kissinger. And if there is one single thing that caused the Soviet Union to lose the Cold War, and there wasn't one single thing, right? Let's be honest. But if there was one single thing, it would be the Sino-Soviet split. And you can't uh, overestimate the effect that uh, that had on on the course of geopolitical events. So that was Kissinger's great geopolitical success story, his grand strategy that worked out. And he said at the time, and you know this is quoted in the Western mainstream media, he said, we sided with China against the Soviet Union now. I think he actually said Russia at the time. I don't even think he said the Soviet Union. Uh, but in 20 years, we'll have to do the opposite, and we'll have to ally with Russia against China. Of course, that never happened. And instead, people like Blinken, who run U.S. foreign policy today, who are not realists, who are you know liberal hegemonists, if you want to call them that, um, they're, they're just exceptionalist supremacists, they don't believe in the realist balance of power. They don't believe in pragmatism. They don't believe in caution in foreign policy. All these things that Kissinger understood as a realist, right? And, you know, not just Kissinger, right? Because the most prominent IR scholar today in the world, right? Probably the, the top IR scholar of all time, John Mearsheimer, the American, you know, he... he you know, he could easily appear on on uh, uh, the, the DD geopolitics. You know, because Wait, he, do you know do you know Professor Mersheimer? Because no, I, mean, I do not. I do. I don't personally know him. <laughs> I, I met him once at the LSD. You know, but I was just you know uh, a student uh, at the time in the audience. But um, I mean, watch any of his videos, right, for the last six months, and you'll see exactly how, you know, he is completely against this whole thing, and he has said from the beginning how Russia would win, well, maybe an ugly victory, but, you know, that this was a tragedy for the U.S., they never should have done any of this. Um, uh, also, another top um, U.S. realist, also, like all realists, locked out of U.S., foreign policy power, Stephen Walt, uh, who was head of political science at Harvard. He occasionally writes in foreign policy. He's another sane person uh, who has realized a lot of the mistakes that have led to this. And the reason is these people are realists, right? They have a view, a understanding of international relations and the actions of states that is based on the real world, not ideological assumptions like liberalism or, you know, exceptionalism as the extreme end of that uh, and so forth. And that's why in the last few years, K 
Kissinger, this great war criminal, this great monster dinosaur of the Cold War, has even seemed a bit sane and rational compared to the U.S. foreign policy ruling elite of today. And that's because they, uh, you know, the realists like Kissinger, like many others like him, uh, you know, aren't are completely out of the way that the U.S., uh, uh, you know, its foreign policy, its elite, its blob formulates their actions in terms of both theory and practice in international relations. Uh, so I, I think Kissinger, you know, for all his many, many faults, and I, there was an excellent article in Ro Rolling Stone of all places. Uh, I talked about it on the Critical Hour uh, the other night. Definitely uh, check that article out on um, uh, Kissinger, his legacy. But there's a great quote there. Uh, it says that the Cubans say that no evil lasts a hundred years. Well, Kissinger proved them wrong. He 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 lasted exactly a hundred years. Uh, but that all said and done, right? There's there's the morality side of it, and then there is the grand strategist realist side of it. And I I very much believe, you know, Kissinger was a smart, cunning, thuggish. Uh, U.S. geopolitical bastard who had his hands in winning the Cold War uh, and, and bringing to the U.S. to the height of its global power, only to see the U.S. embrace a, a new foreign policy elite with completely different uni, you know, hegemonic ideas that Kissinger very much came to regret, which you know, it's kind of a tragedy, a comedy, you know, depending on, on how you want to look at it. Uh, but certainly uh, the man died conflicted. And, you know, here's to that. I think that absolutely shows. And, and, and evidence of that is that he made it a point to travel to China at 100 years yes. old. To try China, to China, you know, uh, Putin had nothing but nice, respectful things to say about the man. Right. Uh, recognizing that at least he was one of the few sane figures left in the U.S. You know, even if he's an evil bastard, you know, as far as Russia is concerned, he was an evil bastard worthy of respect at, at the very least. Uh, you know, that's that's the way I believe that that, that Putin, because Putin is a realist to the core. Oh, 100 percent. 100 percent. Cold blooded realist to the core. So they understood that um, before we. Uh, disappear. We were talking about an impending Russian offensive. So, by my calculations, the the Russian Putin just announced this week. Well, Shoigu did, but you know, coming from Putin, that the size of the Russian total military is now being raised to 2.2 million people. Right of those that are are combat. Right, you know, that are actual serving military is just over 1.3 million, which is an increase now of just another 170,000. If you take a look at the forces that Russia has dedicated to the SMO, which are kind of not directly in line with that, it's getting very close to 1.5 million, right? Well, over 1 million, getting close to 1.5 million, right? That is 
the original 150,000 force to 50,000 LNR DNR to 300,000 plus reservists that were called up, right? And all of those are under stop loss now, so they don't get out until it's over. Um, then uh, uh, there is, uh, of course, whatever the Wagner and the other PMCs that were consolidated together now, take that another 50 or so thousand. And the 450,000 now that uh, in the last year have signed uh, contracts, right, have joined the Russian military as professional contract soldiers, in part because they believe uh, in what Russia is doing in Ukraine, like most Russians do, because there's 5 million Ukrainians who live in Russia, by the way. That's how we know that. Um, but um, on top of, you know, that plus the refugees. And um, the other part of that is the great pay. It's, it's really good pay uh, on, on Russian terms, really, really good pay and benefits. So uh, that's why Russia has been able to recruit now close to 450 uh, uh, thousand contract soldiers. And according to the Ministry of Defense, at least the last time they talked about it a couple of months ago, there's a, basically another thousand signing up every day. Right. Contract sold, professional, you know, not conscripts, not women and children and old people and the disabled. These are young men and, and a few women in some roles, but not, not combat, you know, uh, uh, trench combat ones that are signing up to serve. Um, and that's bringing us very close to, uh, I believe, over a million man army now and, and increasing further. Russia right now and for the next few months is going to, you know, take Avdevka, a few more local cities, and they're going to flatten their lines and improve their tactical position. Russia is going to launch a major offensive, a real offensive, right? A big arrow offensive, but they're not going to do it prematurely, right? They're going to do everything they can, they, they have to to not rush this, to make it a proper offensive to end the war, right? That will, or at least begin the end of the war. But do not expect it probably at the very earliest until summer of 2024, at the earliest. It could be longer than that. They are not, they are not fucking around with this, right? If you do the math, you'll see that all of these, uh, you know, forces that Russia has only about 300,000 of them are actually deployed on the uh, uh, front lines, on, on, on the contact line in Ukraine now. So where are the rest of them? They are being prepared for the real offensive that is yet to come. And, you know, we, we occasionally get hints of that. The um, governor of the Kherson, the new Kherson region of Russia, Vladimir Saldo. Uh, and Saldo uh, is an interesting figure. He was a lifelong politician from Kherson, right? He has been mayor of Kherson City before. He has been a RADA representative from the Kherson region uh, multiple times. Um, he briefly launched his own uh, political party, the Valdo of uh, the uh, Saldo of uh, uh, Vladimir Saldo bloc which was, you know, anti-Maidan, 
uh, before it was, you know, banned along with all the rest of the opposition parties. And when Russia went in, of course, he went right over and Russia has now made him the governor of Kherson, which is a good choice because he's been popularly elected by the people of Kherson again and again and again. But anyway, he had a meeting with Putin this week, uh, this last week, and he came out of it and he, you know, outright you know, said he, he talked and he spoke on social media and he said, uh, Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Vladimirovich, he not only promised me that we, that Russia would retake Kherson city, right? But that they would take Nikolaev, Odessa and Ismail as well, right? Entire Southern South, you know, Southeast, uh, well, southwest, sorry, sweep, right? The the entire coastline of Ukraine. And that's just part of it because I'm sure they have similar plans for Kharkov, you know, uh, and, and the entirety of, of East Ukraine at the very least as well, if not Kiev. Uh, so those are big aims, right? And that being said out in public, like we've heard this before, Putin has begun talking about Odessa and Kharkov a lot lately and about how they are Russian cities. Uh, in in various uh, formats and meetings, he goes to you know to the public across the country. And right now, Putin is the uh, baseball player. He is the the Babe Ruth, if you will, or the Tom Berenger in Major League. He is coming up the bat, and he is pointing at the sky in the distance. Uh, and this is. This is going to be a long-term thing. This isn't something don't don't believe. I don't believe in collapse theories. Russia is winning. Russia has numerous advantages: industrial capacity, right, um, uh, manpower, um, artillery. I mean, you can uh, air power, uh, electronic warfare. You can go down the list. Russia has all of these advantages, but because of the nature of the conflict. Of, of war the way it is today, and that all of NATO is backing the Kiev regime, even if that becomes support becomes less in military and financial terms over time. It doesn't mean that Russia's just going to roll over and someday the Kiev regime military is just going to give up and say, all right, you've beaten us enough, we give up. I don't believe in collapse scenarios. Right. Um, the, the Russian government believed in an economic collapse scenario for the Kiev regime from 2014 to 2022. Right. It never happened. Um, I sincerely hope I'm wrong on that. I would be the happiest day probably of my life if overnight it just falls. But, you know, military planners, you know, serious, they can't plan on miraculous collapses. They this fight proves that offense is hard. And even when Russia has all these advantages and they eke out a victory, it is still a hard fought, bloody, costly victory. And now the Kiev regime is doing the smart thing and they're building defenses all over the country. Right. They've begun the process. If you noticed in the last week where Russia has taken Marienka and Hromova and a few other places they've made significant games gains they all happen because the Kiev regime forces with 
drew. They didn't fight to the last man and all die or be captured like has been done previously. They started getting smart and they'll fight maybe to an unwise level, you know, time at the end. But now they are withdrawing. They are recognizing that they don't have infinite, you know, conscription manpower. So they're starting for the first time to to do things smart in military terms, which is not actually a good sign for the future. Uh, it is a sign Russia has big aims, big goals. Uh, it is not going to settle for any less in Ukraine. It is. I do not believe, uh, you know, all this talk about secret negotiations and nonsense. I think that's all disinformation. Russia has no intentions. There is no one in Kiev, in Brussels, in D.C., in London, in Berlin, that Russia can sign anything with that uh, Putin would waste his time wiping his ass with, right? The, the Minsk agreement, February 21st agreements, you know, ABM, you can't trust these people with anything. You ha can only dictate terms from an overwhelming position of strength and results on the battlefield. And Russia has proven that the Kiev regime is not winning this conflict. But now they have to prove that they can win it. And that's going to be a long, hard, costly fight. The Russian government knows it. They're increasing the size of their military budget to 30% of GDP. They're pulling up more than a million-man army. They are signing long-term uh, military uh, industry, uh, artillery shell, and other military procurement deals with North Korea. They are preparing for serious military operations in Ukraine in the coming years like we have not seen thus far. Big stuff. Big stuff that will inevitably win, but will be costly in doing so. And if I could just finish up briefly talking about how this conflict has changed over time. And one of the things that has changed, the tactics have changed, but a lot of that is also due to the technological changes that we have seen going into this war and even more so during the course of it. The extremely rapid technological and tactical evolution that is occurring every couple of months at the slowest on this battlefield today. This war, I believe, has one foot in the wars of the last, big wars of the last century, and another foot firmly in what we would probably call future war or sci-fi war, except that war is now, right? Um, Drones is, of course, a big part of that. Uh, and in response to drones, electronic warfare, by the way, one of Russia's asymmetric specialties designed to counter NATO's uh, uh, advantages, uh, and which The Economist and Forbes and others, I've done big video pieces on Russia's electronic warfare on Twitter uh, before, you know, you could, you could find those uh, if you search for them. 
and and the West is starting to admit what a huge advantage Russian electronic warfare has, not just over the Kiev regime, but over all of NATO. And electronic warfare is, of course, the big counter to both drones and precision GPS-guided uh, uh, long-range strikes. Uh, but take a look at how the Lancet has evolved from the beginning of this conflict, how the, uh, it, the Lancet is now being guided and targeting, does targeting with AI, right? It has longer range. It has bigger warheads. It is the true big lethal killer of Western artillery pieces uh, and, and depots and, and numerous other things uh, on the battlefield. And Western media has, has written about it in a way they haven't in the last month. The uh, Garan, now called the Black Garan, started out as the cheap Shahed 136 from Iran. The new Black Garan that has been unveiled in the past couple of weeks to open the big winter campaign, uh, it is um, uh, well, well, it's longer range, uh, it's a better networked, it, but it's also composed of black carbon fiber material that is making it harder visually to spot by air defense. And uh, it is uh, radio, radio absorbing. So it's, uh, you know, uh, harder to detect with uh, radar. Um, take a look at Russia using robotic systems on the battlefield, like the Terminator tank killer. The um, UR-6 um, uh, heavy robot demining vehicle. Um, all of these uh, increasingly robotic systems. Um, Russia has also deployed a new version of the improved version of the R-37M Vimple air-to-air uh, -air missile, as well as a, a new air defense missile fired from the S-400s that in the past six weeks, the combination of the two of them has wiped out 40, 40 Ukrainian, it's close to 40 Ukrainian aircraft, 40. I didn't even know they had that many left, to be honest. Uh, certainly not much more than that. That's why there's such a hot push very suddenly on the F-16s. And if they can't get any birds in the air, uh, they can't fire off any storm shadows because those are air-launched cruise missiles, which is why you're not hearing anything about them anymore. Uh, so all of these advances that are occurring, big electronic warfare advances, uh, but the Kiev regime is also getting innovative. And because of the severe hell, uh, uh, artillery shell hunger that they are experiencing now because... First of all, they weren't getting enough shells from the West to begin with because of that production problem, but also what the West is getting now, the majority of those shells are going to Israel. So uh, to a large extent, the you, what uh, Western howitzer guns across the battle lines have, have started to go quiet. The Kev regime is now doing the job of artillery prep with FPV drones. Right. Russia is out producing them in FPV drones, out using them on the battlefield. But it doesn't mean they're not getting their hits in with them. Right. And there have been reports out uh, in New Scientist in the, the past month uh, or so and a few other places 
both Russia and Ukraine are now experimenting with AI targeting of drones, uh, which is to say Terminator shit, like real Terminator shit. These, both sides are starting to use what you could call AKVs, autonomous kill vehicles, right? This is AI doing the targeting, the launching, the guidance, and the targeting, right? The new Lancets are using it in part, and the Kiev regime uh, also uh, is starting to play with it as well. Um, the Kiev regime uh, played a new game with the Baba Yaga in the past week or so. The Baba Yaga is their own supposedly domestically decide, uh, designed uh, long-range uh, strike drone, right? kind of the equivalent of a Viraptor. They used it in a new role in the past week. They used it as a drone aircraft carrier. It carried FPV drones on its wings and then flew and then launched them, giving the FPV drones, of course, a much longer range than they were using before. Not a game changer on the battlefield. You know, it's a trick. But see the evolution in thought and what is being done on the battlefield with all of these uh, new systems. Robotics, AI, electronic warfare, uh, uh, long-range precision strike. This is the war of the future. And if you don't believe that U.S. and Chinese planners aren't paying a lot of attention to what is happening in this conflict, particularly in the Black Sea, where arguably the Kiev regime has turn the Black Sea into a gray zone, and Russia has pulled a considerable portion of the Black Sea fleet out of Crimea, out of, well, certainly out of Sevastopol, and, and taken part of it back to Novorossiysk, just because it wasn't playing a very big part in this conflict, and it was just presenting a target to what is essentially Western, you know, NATO maritime drones and cruise missiles, you know, trying to you know, pick apart the Black Sea fleet. And it's very, you know, quiet now where the, where the Russian media is not talking about it. But the Kiev regime has removed grain trade and re, re, has restarted grain trade in the Black Sea because of this, because it is now a gray zone. They're able to move their grain ships in and out, which of course means they're also moving military supplies in uh, on those uh, same ships that will go out carrying grain. And they're going through the, uh, um, the Dardanelles Straits and they're hugging the coasts of uh, Budapest and of Bulgaria and Romania and then sliding into the uh, uh, Danube for uh, Ismail or one of the other ports there that the Kiev regime has uh, uh, off of, directly off of the Black Sea. But... Uh, China and the U.S. are very paying very close attention to what's going on there. The NATO slash Ukraine, Ukraine doesn't have a navy anymore, right? 75% of it defected to Russia back in 2014 along both personnel and ships, as was admitted at one time by Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. But they're proving that with just maritime drones, aerial drones, and missiles, that... Uh, they can present a serious threat to the Black Sea Fleet, a, a, a threat that is simply not worth Russia sacrificing the Black Sea Fleet for. 
which is why they've simply decided to allow the grain trade to occur quietly, at least at a low level, and have backed the Black Sea fleet off out of range to not present a target. Why? Because it's not essential to the conflict that's occurring right now. And, you know, they're not going to sacrifice any more ships to $20,000 drones. That's, that's uh, absurd. But it is the future of naval warfare, of aerial warfare, even of land warfare, drones, electronic warfare, robotic systems, AI is all in an increasing part of this conflict, and it will be the next major conflict. Well, I think that's a really great place to wrap. We've come a long way from washing machine chips in the beginning of the episode to now. <laughs> drones and uh, a, a Su-57 that's going to uh, shoot drones out of it. And who the hell knows? To show you how much importance Putin places <laughs> on AI, he went to an AI conference in Russia uh, a week ago, right, where he talked about it is the next step of uh, human society, right? It is the next step of human civilization. And he's spoken many times about the dangers of it. He's very cognizant of that. But he also realizes that anyone that doesn't play the game in that race is very rapidly going to be left behind. So he's really pushing Russian industry, Russian intellectuals big on adoption of, of AI. He is very uh, able to see the future uh, in strategic terms in a very clear way. Uh, Maybe the Chinese are planning 10 years ahead and the Americans are still planning for the last war. But Putin's at least planning for the war five years ahead. Tsar Putin is omnipotent and omnipresent. So we he's everywhere, nowhere, knows everything and sees Red all. Bullshit. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's a good leader, but he's not perfect. He's close to it. He's the best we got. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Yara. Um, it has been another amazing episode. Mark, why don't you let them know what you're up to and where they can find you again? Uh, right now, I'm up to a snifter of honey whiskey. But um, if you're looking for me on social media, um, the, the, Mark the real politic with Mark Sloboda. Uh, first, uh, on uh, Telegram, first of all, right? Uh, also on Substack, my Substack is free, will always be free, right? There's no charges. Follow me on there. I put a lot of my radio interviews, which I do several daily on Sputnik. I put at least one of those on there a day. Uh, I'm also active on Twitter. Um, and uh, I have a YouTube channel, uh, The Real Politic with Mark Sloboda. I don't get to update it as much because of the amount of radio work I'm doing and because YouTube is terribly censored. But uh, we'll, we'll see about that going forward. Um, and, um, technically I have a Facebook page. If anyone's grandfather oh. is out there watching this, it's uh, <laughs> um, left I, behind I, I, on I, Facebook. Well, us too. You can find us everywhere. Um, don't forget Yara and I are poor, so we'd make our income from uh, your likes, shares, and subscriptions. Please like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube. And our Substack is back up and running, also free. Please go there. There's an option to support us monthly, five dollar subscription minimum. It would be, uh, we would love you for it. Seriously, we are in our building phase with a new editor and new writers. Uh, again, like, share, and subscribe to the stream. I have no idea what we're gonna do next. Hopefully, an episode on Kissinger. Um, 
I think that's all I got. Yara, take us home. She's muted, so I'll do it. Thank you again. <laughs> Thank you again for another wonderful episode. Have a good weekend, Yara. Have fun today. Be careful. <laughs> it's